Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. Thank you, everybody, for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, I think I know most of you here. <laughs> okay, I'm going to... N- no one knows anything about this book. Maybe Lynn. <laughs> um, this is my best friend from high school, by the way, you guys. <laughs> um, the, the story is um, about five characters, and what I want to do is just read um, from... I'm just going to introduce three because of the way it'll take too much time. So, um, and I hope I don't read too fast because I'm a fast reader. But um, the first one is um, Phoebe, who is, um, it, it, I, I, I won't go into detail. You, you should read the book. Okay, um, it took a lot of soul searching for Venetia to finally choose to make the call. She'd done enough internal inventory over the years to know when she wasn't in the right place to go this completely alone. While praying was at the top of her must-do while she was off balance, her go-to-God moments generally required patience in order to receive divine guidance. Venetia had none at the moment, and that still small voice she was supposed to rely on hadn't kicked in. She ran two miles along the lake thinking that would do the trick. All she got out of that was a good workout. Was it possible to still have the same feelings, the same thinking, after running two miles? She understood from her work as a life coach that feelings weren't static, but adjusted to incessant changing circumstances. So why didn't she feel differently? Why was her mind still on the same thing? After all, subsequent to running, she'd stopped to chat with the neighbor walking her dog. They discussed the hostile tone of the presidential election, the prolonged dry spell, and a housewives franchise. Afterward, Venetia had showered, paid a few bills online, and made several business calls. She never felt this stuck. What she needed was some one-on-one, something touchy-feely, not an elusive message swirling around the ether. Okay, so she preferred secular instead of spiritual communication. There was go to God, and there was go to Phoebe. Her godmother, as the pathetic, overused cliche went, had been there and done that. Venetia's thoughts stopped in midair when she heard the buzzing coming from the direction of her mobile device. She reached for the smartphone, set beside her a cup of barely-touched tea, and glanced fleetingly at the familiar number. She replaced the cell on the table. Venetia spotted Phoebe run entering the bright and open space of the downtown mall. The stores weren't open for business yet, and Venetia loved it when it was quiet, save for a few people probably working in the mall, sitting at tables and benches here and there. The place was empty. Those sitting in the mall were alone, their eyes fixed to an electronic device they held in their hand. Occasionally, they reached blindly for a ubiquitous cup containing something caffeinated. Venetia, half-standing, waved to Phoebe. Clad in a sporty suit that had the loft brand look, Phoebe hurried toward her godchild. With a judgmental judgmental eye, but without looking too long, Venetia admired the heather-gray pinstripe suit. It was acceptably stylish, but it gave her a bit more insight as to how rough her godmother was having it. Venetia felt a startling sorrow in her throat at the very thought. Phoebe had 
lost so much and it appeared from nowhere. Nothing about life ever happened suddenly though. Phoebe greeted Venetia. I just have a few to kill. Oh, that temp gig, huh? Yeah. Not enough time for tea? Sorry. She sat in the accompanying stool. So why did you want to want me to meet you here? Casually, Phoebe looked up to the skylight. Effervescent sunbeams escaped from the glass ceiling, circulating generously inside the opulent mall. Barry's cheating on me. Her eyes wide. Phoebe swallowed hard and suppressed the words at the tip of her tongue. She said instead, I thought he was in Libya. How did you find out? Well, Venetia, Venetia began in an insecure voice. I didn't find out that he was cheating exactly. I know something's off. Something's not right. He's different. She reached for the tea and sipped through the small hole, leaving a lipstick stain on the plastic lid. Phoebe sighed. Of course she remembered what it was like to be a newbie in the third dec decade of her life. In the 30s, oh yes, we were smarter than the 20s with a sliver of self-assuredness that was impossible to have before our 21st birthday. Moreover, we were insightful, while not necessarily psychologically mature, to take full advantage of the awareness the years leading up to the 40s produced. Women in their 40s had some distance, enough to be conscious of the wisdom and know how to use it to their benefit. A lot of seemingly unfair experiences in the 30s began to make sense in the fourth decade. Yet by the 50s, we found a way, oftentimes unconsciously, to prioritize and minimize. But even with all the knowledge and wisdom leading into the fifth decade, we managed to cling deeply to embedded wounds and private pain. Phoebe reached across the small table and squeezed Venetia's hand. I have to go, I'll be late. I'm in the middle of a crisis. Phoebe came to her feet. She wrapped an elegant warm weather scarf loosely around her neck. Do you really need me to tell you what you should do? Come on, Venetia, if he's cheating, but, 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 but you, your mother couldn't possibly give birth to a fool. Phoebe pressed her cheek against her uh, Venetia's. If you still have tr doubts when I get home, let's talk. Thoughts generally change during the course of a day. We can open one of those expensive bottles of wine you have. That's one hell of a wine collection you have. And we can talk all night, but I have to go. Phoebe had turned to leave when Venetia called out, good luck, and Phoebe. Phoebe looked over her shoulder. You're right about my wine collection. Venetia grinned. Oddly, she even felt not so much better. She felt lighter. Okay. Uh, this next one is to sort of introduce um, the, the, juxtapos the, the juxtaposition between someone older and someone younger. With wide uh, aqua blue eyes, the concierge looked up at Phoebe. She stood on the other side of the all-glass desk, and, and the concierge knew she looked familiar, but she wasn't exactly sure why she recognized Phoebe's face. A courteous smile touched her lips in the way she had become accustomed to by being the first impression of media capital. With a trendy bob haircut, colored in a quiet blonde, so not to overstate her pseudo-blondness, she was Aven uh, Madison Avenue attractive. Cute blouse, the style typically found on racks at Forever 21 and H&M, the youthful clothing stores of her generation with affordable short-lived trends. Delicate eye color, a popular shade at the moment added a quiet maturity to her youthful face. Her glossy, sparkly lipstick was subtle and made her lips look fuller. Phoebe wasn't keen on shiny lipstick. She didn't want to look as though she'd forgotten to wipe her mouth after finishing off a few buffalo wings or lobster. 
Good morning, the concierge greeted Phoebe. She lifted her forefinger, the short, manicured, nail-polished indigo blue. Excuse me. She pressed a button and uh, adjusted her earpiece. Good morning, Media Capital. How my director call? He's not in the office. Smoothly, familiarly, the concierge touched the screen of an electronic tablet with her forefinger. Concentrating with an acute attentiveness unusual for someone her age, her eyes scanned the details. It took a matter of seconds for her to resume. He's expecting in about nine. She listened, she listened professionally. I'll put you through to his voicemail. Have a good day, Miss Kendricks. Thank you. The concierge pressed a button on the multi-lined phone that Phoebe could scarcely make out through the thick plated glass. Sorry, can I help you? The concierge talked very fast, no pauses, not even to take a breath. Phoebe Plaz, I'm from the next generation. My contact is Glory. Oh, right, yes, correct. She pushed a few buttons and said into her mouthpiece, a temp associate from the next generation is in reception. She listened briefly. Take a seat. Gloria will be right with you. Coffee? No, thank you, said Phoebe. Sitting in one of the plush chairs, Phoebe stole glances at the concierge. Had Phoebe been so poised, so mature, and exuding pseudo-confidence in her early 20s, would this young woman be wiser and smarter and savvier than she'd been in her youth? Had all of Phoebe's choices been so careless that each one led her to a seat and waiting for someone named Gloria about a temp job at 52? Was the 20-something born at the right time in the right atmosphere when women really did excel in ways her generation hadn't been able to do? Women were not where they used to be, even in the concierge's time. After all, Americans were more accepting of a black man as president than they were a white woman. Helen Gurley Brown, God rest her soul, would gasp at Phoebe's thoughts. Well, Phoebe was never the feminist type. Before Sex in the City, there was Helen Gurley Brown's Sex in the Single Girl. Could the concierge honor a pioneer who uh, she might or might not have heard of who contributed to American culture to a degree it paved the way for the concierge's independence, her myriad of options? Moreover, the very style this young woman was wearing, Miss Brown wore the same trends in the previous century. Brown, a 60s diva, had a fingerprint on the purported sexual revolution. Contraception, premarital sex, abortion, homosexuality, feminism, which transformed a generation. A lean, attractive woman stood in front of Phoebe, interrupting her mental chatter. Phoebe stood. Good morning, Gloria, and I'm so glad you could make it on such short notice. Come, let's go to my office. Gloria's office was small, but there was a snapshot view of the downtown skyline. Personal touches, fresh flowers and tasteful vase, framed photographs of family and or friends, two business-styled heather brown chairs overcrowded the space, and a flat-screen TV muted to the Bloomberg Channel. So, Phoebe, did you have trouble finding parking? No. Public transportation? Right. So you won't need a key card for parking. I think I'll be using the rail. So, Gloria said, uh, Gloria exhaled. Let's see. She sought out specifics on Phoebe's resume. Well, she said with an elevated brow, you lived in Paris, Toronto, and wow, Sydney. It's great you've worked for a restaurant. And rules? That should impress, Chef. Are you sure you, won't be do- you, you want to do this? Next Generation informs you that it would be a minimum of four weeks. I understand. A hospitality assistant didn't work out. Chef's particular soul will need to really find the right fit. Are you okay with the potential of perhaps six weeks? I am starting today, uh, right? The talent acquisitions director took a closer look at Phoebe. If Gloria had to guess from her resume, she was about five, six years 
she was five or six years her senior, and Gloria was 41. Although her suit was dated, she had a timeless look about her, and men noticed her. Conceivably, not in the same way they did when she was 15 years younger, Gloria assumed, like a few of her friends from grad school, Phoebe needed to take whatever she could get in this great recession aftershock. Of course, let's get you settled in. Phoebe followed the TA director down a corridor, and Gloria, despite wearing five-inch gladiator open-toed heels acted as though she was rushing to put out a fire. Phoebe was wearing a pair of shoes she could hardly wear all day and be comfortable. Who was she kidding? She wore platforms to her high school prom. Now here she was decades later, what, pretending she could still hang? Coffee, tea, Gloria asked over her shoulder, I'm good. Here we go. This is this will be your office. I know it's no bigger than a bread box. No window, Gloria said, being facetious. You can put your belongings here. Chef's PA will come and direct you on everything. IT will assign you a laptop. Thank you, Gloria. You any questions? My door is always open. Okay, this is um, Joseph, who is um, very old school. So I just want to forewarn you so you can, this makes sense to you. Uh, Cornell, Cornell, damn that boy. Joseph attempted to resume reading the Times. That unnecessarily loud music made it a challenge to concentrate on the words printed on the paper. Obama's camp accused Romney's camp of reinventing the truth. And Romney's camp accused the Obama administration of ruining everything once sacred about America. Politics was always a blood sport. But back in the day, people were focused on character development. In this century, it was look at me. Politics wasn't so vicious two decades ago. And the money spent on campaigns these days? Billions used entirely to bash one another with mandacious television ads. With, the level of, with that level of cash flow, they could get the country out of hock. Joseph took a deep breath. The loud music rattled his nerves. Cornell, he yelled. His restraint had reached a breaking point. He dropped the newspaper to the granite countertop and placed the coffee mug next to it with, so, with force, so much so some of the black coffee splattered onto the surface. Joseph shouted over his, over his shoulder, Cornell! Annoyed, he stood and with long strides headed for the front of the house. That hip-hop noise was so loud the house vibrated. The landline rang, and before he headed up the stairs to confront his son, he stopped and looked at the phone and its carriage across the room. As if to decide which had precedence, Joseph looked from the telephone to the stairway. The ringing telephone abated. Cornell, he yelled, much louder this time. Within moments, Cornell popped his head around the corner of a spiral stairway. Tall and lean, he had the looks of a male model. Yeah, Dad, you call me? He held the iPad that Joseph regrettably purchased for his son on his birthday. Primarily, since a, four, a few weeks a few weeks later, he dropped out of university and in his senior year. This then his son announced ever so casually his girlfriend with a name like Sin was four months pregnant. Cornell wasn't raised to drop out of school and get a girl pregnant out of wedlock. His behavior was completely irresponsible. He had no job, no income. What could he do? He had to let Joseph had to let him come back home. Can you turn it down a notch? What? 
If you take those things out of your ears, you might be able to hear me. He yelled, why you need the music so loud anyway? What are the earphones for? These are earbuds. He held them with the tips of his fingers. I'll turn it down, as you say, a notch. Anyway, didn't you do the same thing back in, oh, at my age with, what was it called in your day, the Walkman? I didn't listen to my Walkman in a stereo at the same time. It makes no sense. Whatever, Dad. Cornell slipped his earbud back in his ear. Turn off the stereo. If you're listening to the iPod, you don't need to, he- to listen to the stereo. Th- you don't need the stereo blasting, too. Man, it's music. Did you just refer to me as man? Cornell frowned, giving his father a dad, please look. You asked me to buy you that tablet because you needed it for school. You drop out. The laptop can do the exact same thing as that fancy iPad. Don't try to finesse me, Cornell. Stop messing around on that thing and look for a job. I'm looking. I'm, it's not like I'm not looking. Go out and buy a newspaper. Knock on some doors. But stop. But look for work. A newspaper? Seriously. They don't uh, list jobs in the newspaper. Everything's online. And knock on a door? It might not take a, there might not be a lot of jobs, good jobs out there, but surely something's out there. I can make a call, get you something, and it might not be full time working at the post office. What? And get laid off? Those office, the, the post office is barely surviving. They raise the cost of stamps every six months. Who uses stamps anymore anyway? Postal jobs, that's old school. He shrugged with the natural smugness. You were a blue-collar man, but that's so last century. Outsourcing, green jobs, tech, stuff like that. Those are the jobs of the future. There's no potential at the post office. There was a subtle arrogance in Cornell's tone. And without a degree, how far would that get you? Steve Jobs didn't have a degree, and look where that got him. It's a semester. I'm going back. Steve Jobs, huh? Look, get a job. If it means flipping burgers, get a job. You are, like, so antiquated. You think I'm not looking and flip a burger? Heck, that isn't even minimum wage work. You'd better find something, something that'll help you take care of your unborn child. I'm not taking care of sin and you and a baby, too. Zen, Dad. What normal person names their child Zen anyway? When Joseph returned to his cup of coffee and took a sip, it was no longer warm. That's how he preferred his first cup, warm. He barely touched uh, his coffee before the music started blasting, waking up the dead, a waste. Joseph wiped up the spiel he'd made earlier. With a sigh, his eyes wandered out at the sunny morning. The dry spell made his once perfectly green-colored lawn look like straw. He'd canceled the services of the gardener when Cornell moved in. That boy hadn't picked up so much as a broom, let alone pulled out the lawnmower. Now that the leaves were starting to fall, did he really expect his son to reach for a rake? I might as well tend to the lawn. Nothing but bad news in the paper anyway, he mumbled to himself. That illegal shooting of police officer in cold blood, so brazen with witnesses looking on. Endless wars, inequality. Dismayed, Joseph shook his head. Well, let me go on out here. He headed for the back door. The last one is Diane, who um, is um, starting to really have some problems uh, because of menopause. But she is she's a great person, though. Don't don't let that. You'll see when you read it. Um, Diane hadn't felt this nervous since she learned of her first pregnancy. That news took a minute to sink in. A beeping sound came from her cell. She reached for it in the side pocket of her purse. It was Vanessa, inquiring whether she had broken, spoken to the trainer. The first text from the personal trainer knocked her off her feet, and Diane couldn't deal with it. But the second text, she didn't know how to process it. Too much was coming at her at once. At the last minute, 
she canceled her appearance at a board meeting so so as to make the consultation. Now, while waiting in a small reception area of an office that played what used to be called elevator music, Diane wasn't sure this was a good idea, and and she never canceled meetings. Torque mentioned that morning that there there was a strong possibility her mother-in-law would be flying in to spend Christmas with them. Although Diane got along with her quite well, she was a strong, opinionated, and successful woman who had had a clever way of telling Diane she... She had a clever way of making Diane feel like a failure because she didn't have a career. With so much pressure in her life right now, the personal trainer wasn't something she could handle. She responded to her sister's text with the quick, not yet, will 411 you. Diane, she looked up to a woman standing in the doorway. She was petite, with dark, exotic looks that enhanced her aging beauty. She was Indian. Diane realized it by her name, Shaheen. With a generous smile, she opened her door, wider as if to invite Diane inside. Sorry to keep you waiting, she said. Her voice was raspy, like that of a longtime smoker. Diane stood and walked toward the woman. I was early. Join me. The small, attractive office smelled of lavender. There were striking works of art on two walls and enough books to fill a small library. Diane noted the woman's framed degrees, Cambridge, Princeton, and Yale, on a wall. A tall vase of fresh sunflowers sat on a desk by the laptop. Let's have a seat. The woman sat across from Diane and crossed her legs. I like the smell. What is it? Scented oil. Lavender? Uh, let's see. It really does mi- minimize tension. She said to be polite. Does it really? It's true. Diane took a deep breath and attempted to relax. She sensed the woman could feel her anxiety. She reached inside her pocket of, the pur- of her purse. I should turn off my phone. Once they were each comfortable in their seats, Shaheen said, How are you, Diane? Good, thank you. Her Mona Lisa smile suggested she didn't buy that line, but the therapist didn't verbalize her thoughts. Well, Diane spread her hands. I mean, this is only a consultation. Think of me as a trusted friend and tell me. And let's start with one thing. What brought you to my office? Wow, only one, huh? Well, there can be two or three. But that's. But let's start with something simple. We won't change the world in one visit anyway. Diane liked Shaheen. She was genuinely kind and naturally attentive. Diane sensed she could indeed trust her. Going to see a therapist was insane, but Vanessa told her baby sister it was a good idea. When she came when she came home from having drinks with Phoebe, Diane told Torek she was having trouble concentrating and she was going through something but didn't know what. He's the one that recommended Diane see someone. Recently, I ran into someone from my past, male or female. Female. We were singers. I'm not sure you heard of us, but we were called Venice. It was four years, our friendship in the group, but it feels longer than my 16-year marriage. And this friend? I was about to turn 21 when we met. I was taking fashion design courses in Hollywood. Are you familiar with the energy crisis back in the late 70s? Yes, I recall it. In Los Angeles, we had these odd and even days, and it was based on your license plate. The day I met Phoebe, she was in front of me in a line that was about four blocks long. When I got closer to the entrance of the gas station, I happened to notice that her plates, her plate number was odd, but gas day was even numbers. 
I, okay, my throat is a little dry. I walked up to her convertible. It was an MGBGT, Diane recalled with amusement. I told her she was on the wrong day and that she had to get out of line. She jumped out of her car with her hands on her hips and told me to go to hell. That she had to be at work at the photomat in Santa Monica, a good 15 miles from where we were. And we were at a gas station on Melrose and La Brea. Whatever happened to photomat? Digital, I guess. Anyway, she was feisty and bold, strong-minded. She intimidated me, and I backed off. But then another girl, who eventually became my friend as well, and she was also a part of Venice, she jumped out of her car and, uh, and to stop these two black chicks yelling and screaming about who should and shouldn't be in the line getting gas. A friendship began that day. I'm not even sure how, but the three of us became very good friends. People used to say that we were each other's shadow. Phoebe was different than anyone I'd known. The therapist detected frustration and mild depression in Diane's voice. How so? She wasn't trying to, but she stood. There was something about her, mystery and defiance. She moved to L.A. without knowing a soul. I could never do that. She had this self-assuredness I lacked. Her ideals were grand in comparison to mine. She wanted to travel the world, learn different cultures and languages. I think she was drawn... I I think I was drawn to her because of envy. Diane could feel her eyes start to collect tears. She bit them back as best she could. She swallowed thickly and wet her lips, pressing them together to keep the swell of emotions at bay. I really do believe, she said, talking through the pain in her throat. Phoebe ruined my life. Hi, Don. <laughs> Hi, Ilana. Does anybody have any questions at all? Yes, Lynn. So do all these people know each other, or are these stories kind of running in parallel? Uh, they're running in parallel, but there are, there are degrees of separation, one to, say, three degrees of separation. Um, everyone knows each other on some level, whether it's casual or through someone else, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Any other questions? Just, uh, I just love your character development. You can see with each comment that they make, it's, it, they just keep building like that. Thank you. Is there any, um, or how autobiographical is I knew somebody was going to ask me that question. <laughs> I know. Don knows enough about me to know there's probably something there. Uh, um, it, it's not, it, it's, I wouldn't consider any of these stories or any of this, there are pieces of me in it and there are some experiences of me in there, but they're without question enhanced to be, so that they are, makes, you know, are readable so you can get something out of it. If I told you the story, it would be boring. But if I told you my story, it would be boring. So any other questions? Any other? Did it? Yeah. I'm sorry? Uh, right girls. Yeah, right, right girl? Yeah, right girl. Uh, okay, now what did you want to know about right girl? Um, I work in education, and uh, it's an important thing to make sure that I really very much admire. How do you um, pick your essay, or what ways do you recommend empowering students in terms of how you their own voice and giving confident in the voice uh, as an author? Um, you know, Simon & Schuster has this Q&A that they do, and one of the questions... I'm Harry. Come on in. Um, one of the questions that they ask 
is what advice would you give a writer? And that answer has changed over the years because I also do uh, read manuscripts and, and sometimes I get that, that question. And the question that I would, the answer that I would have given five years ago was a different answer than I would give today. But I, one thing that I have learned from just, old, just a long time in doing this is that there are two things that I think when you're so busy trying to get there that you don't get it, is that the rejections are just a part of the process because a lot of people give up very soon because of rejection. And and it does take... It has to be something that you truly want to do to keep going. And the other thing is, I think that... And what I've learned from Right Girl, because the Right Girls have taught me a lot, is to be just... Just to speak... Just be free. Don't hold back. And which what, that's what the right girls do. I mean, if you ever read any of their work, if you haven't seen their book, um, the book that's out this year, I mean, it is incredible. Um, and I wish that I had had a right girl at 16. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I volunteer for it. Yeah. Any other questions? Any, anything else? I did. Um, I have, well, I'm not working on anything now, but uh, this was a two-book deal, so there's another book coming out next year called Vulnerable. Yeah. Is there any connection between the two? No. There's no connection at all. It's a totally different book. I mean, totally different book. (laughs) And in, in, in in that book, in the new middle, the beginning, a portion of the prologue is in the back. So give you a difference. Um, Vulnerable is a story about, uh, it's about a school teacher who meets a uh, sort of starting to not be uh, so, what's the word I want to use, successful supermodel person. And when he meets her, they start this relationship that was very intense. In the meantime, a person, another friend of his and a colleague is a female. They're very good friends. And then so there becomes this four, four people start, start this sort of friendship. And then something, it, something happens that forever changes all four of them. That's as far as I can go. Okay. <laughs> How did you decide on the title of the new medal? Um, well, I, I, the, the new medal, the title, I... The, yeah, there was about uh, about ten years ago. Um, we were I was with some other people and we were talking and um, and it sort of made me start thinking about writing about being uh, middle aged in this culture. Um, but uh, when we were talking about it, someone had made the comment about. Um, well, the typical 40s, the new 50 or whatever, whatever the sayings are. And so from that, I started thinking about how different, you know, you look at a lot of people and you, I, I can almost never guess somebody's age who's, who might be even older than me. So I think it just, I think for the most part, what I was trying to do is say that this, the middle-aged now, is not our mother's middle age or our father's middle age. We're a different, um, uh, just a different part of the baby boom generation. We're at the end of it. And it's just a different, we're a different type of middle, 
middle age. And so that's why I called it the new middle. Yeah. So true. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Any other questions? That's it. Jay. <laughs> okay. Is that it? Thank you. Okay. You know something that um, the book that you just wrote—it's not—it's normally not the type of book that I like to read. But just listening. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think you told me that before, though. But yeah. listening to the dialogue. Yes, it it really it brings me in and sucks you right in. Oh, that's good. So, Thank you. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, I'm excited. I'm so used to reading books on Kindle, so I have to look at my Adam for so long. Oh, you could have gotten it on Kindle. Really? You could no, have. No, but I couldn't get you to sign it. No, but <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.